0: you're listening to leveling up where we'll show you how to win at the game of life and business it's time to power up your skills through life gamification with your host eric Sue. all right everyone today we've got matt clifford he is the co-founder and ceo at entrepreneur first so i actually had the pleasure of meeting matt at a event called Capital Camp. And when I learned about Entrepreneur First, I was just fascinated and I just wanted to keep talking. But there's just so many people to meet that day. And we had a pretty long conversation, I would say. But Entrepreneur First, they're the world's leading talent investor. I'm actually going to let Matt explain what that means in a second. But what they do is they bring together exceptional people to meet their co-founders for technology companies. They just raised their Series C. And yeah, there's a whole bunch of things that are packed in there. But first and foremost, Matt, I want to welcome you to the show. How are you? I'm well, thanks. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here. So, tell us a little more about kind of what your story is as it relates to EF and then uh, we'll go into EF.
1: Great. Yeah, so entrepreneur first, I started about 10 years ago with my co-founder Alice and You know, the thesis was the world's missing out on some of its best founders. You know, I think if you sit in Silicon Valley and look at the world, it's easy to think that everyone who wants to be a founder or should be a founder just naturally becomes one. And, you know, we were not sitting in Silicon Valley. We were sitting in London. And in fact, the opposite looked true. It looked like there were tons of people who would be great entrepreneurs who were getting sucked into corporate careers that they didn't love, like... You know, climbing ladders in jobs that were not actually satisfying them, trying to make their boss look good year after year to get a bigger bonus. And, you know, it struck us that there was a huge waste of talent. And so we really tried to dive into what is driving that? Why don't these people start companies? And the thing we came up with as the number one blocker was that if you're not in a major startup ecosystem and therefore starting a company is a really weird thing where you are the chances of you having the right co-founder in your network, someone who's as talented as you are, as ambitious, as committed and ready to go now, are just really low. And so does that mean those people just shouldn't start companies? Sorry, you don't have that person. Well, that sort of was conventional wisdom at the time. And our thesis was, what if you could build the best place in the world to find a co-founder? And that's what Entrepreneur First is, I hope. It's certainly what we're trying to be. Obviously, there's a lot baked into that. It means that we have to be great recruiters of talent. It means that we have to have a great methodology for how we help people start companies with strangers. That sounds like a weird thing, and in some ways it is. And also, we have to be a learning machine. We need to be you know we're lucky to have thousands of people we funded and get tens of thousands of applicants a year. We have to be constantly using what we observe through how founders come together to try and make the best possible experience.
0: Got it. I love that. And so it's what, so I'm looking at the notes here, 500 plus companies created over 3000 plus alumni. Are, are those numbers accurate? Yeah, roughly. Yes. Yeah. So we've probably funded, yeah, several thousand people at this
1: stage, sort of probably coming up for 500 companies that have you know raised external capital after EF, portfolio value of about $10 billion just over. So yeah, like we've done this at some scale now, six countries around the world where we do this. Cool. And so
0: what are some kind of notable companies that people might know of?
1: Yeah. So like some of the companies that have done really well after ef probably the biggest one to date is a company called tractable tractable is a you know a unicorn company that provides ai services to the insurance industry so what they do is you take a picture of a car that's been in an accident tractable can tell you better than a human you know how much it will cost to fix whether it's worth trying to fix that sort of thing so they do claims processing for you know big household names like geico and you know many of the biggest auto insurers in the world that company alex and rasband the founders met at ef in 2015 they raised their Series Z last year that made them a unicorn led by Insight Partners. And you know, I think that's going to be a great company. Company top of mind, because they just announced their uh, Series C yesterday, Clio. Cleo is one of the most used financial advice applications for Gen Z. So, you know, how do you actually help younger people think about financial literacy, how to save, how to budget? It's used by millions of people in the US and around the world company that many of your listeners won't have heard of, but one of our most impactful ones is a company called Acurix. Acurix powers 99% of patient-doctor communication in the UK in primary care. So 99% of family doctors in the UK use Acurix to communicate with their patients. And that just creates a sort of ability to provide better care at lower cost than ever before. So that's a huge and growing company, but very UK focused. That could go on and on and on. There are, there are dozens of these, but we're very proud to have played a
0: part in bringing their founders together. That's good. I mean, you know, when we were talking in person, you we were just, I was like, so this is like you're just saying how this is before YC. So just for everyone to know Y Combinator, what they do is like they help like the Dropbox, the Airbnbs of the world, right? But they actually are a little later stage. So I'm just trying to like if you can visualize for people, like, yeah, what is EF perfect for? Like, what's the perfect timing for EF? Yeah. So like the way so we're huge fans of YC. YC come
1: after us. So if you have a team and an idea and maybe a product. Y Combinator is probably the best place in the world to go and get accelerated, you know, to kind of figure out how to move faster and raise some money at the end. EF starts before you're ready to even apply to you know, YC or another accelerator or to go and raise funding. EF's like starting premise is if you want a great co-founder, we're the best place to come and find one. So we fund individuals pre-company who are looking for co-founders. Some of them have ideas. Some of them don't. Frankly, we don't screen for the idea. That's like one of the big parts of what we do is even if you've got an idea, our sort of offer to you is not conditional on whether we like the idea. Because what we've seen many times, Tractable is a great example. You know, that's a thousand X investment for EF. Neither founder had anything like that idea on the way in. They had completely different ideas. I don't think they'd mind me saying they had terrible ideas. And so our bet is on the talent, not the company. We'll figure out the company with the founder once they've joined us.
0: Got it. Yeah. You know, I was reading about the YC story early days. I mean, this is after you know they had some success. I think they, they had an exit and then I believe it was Jessica decided, Hey, like, you know, we want to do this thing. And then what happened was they were initially using their own money to kind of back these founders. Yeah. Right. So I, I'm curious, like early days, what did it look like for you guys? How did you prove out this concept?
1: Yeah, I wish we'd had the exit before we did it so that we could have used our own money, <laughs> but we didn't. So early on, I mean, honestly, I would say the first three years of EF was just trying to figure out a business model for exactly that reason. So it seemed so counter to conventional wisdom at the time that it didn't seem... You know, we failed to raise funding in the first three years. So we went through a number of routes. We We got some corporate sponsorship. We raised eventually in year three, a sort of little angel syndicate, and then we got lucky, and we met a bigger investor and a, an individual who really believed in the idea. And you know, he anchored our first proper fund. And since then, we sort of gradually just increased the size of that over time. Eventually, bringing you know, getting more focused on institutional investors. But the Series C that we just announced is a really exciting and big change for us because it's actually a switch to EF investing from its balance sheet as a company. So it's not a fund. It's effectively trying to build a permanent capital vehicle. In other words, thinking like our investment horizon is forever and that we're gonna keep recycling the
0: gains from the companies we build into, you know, the founders of the future. Got it. Wow, I love that. So prior to I mean you guys raised 158 million for your series C. So prior 22 million, that was like for the whole thing for the last like nine, 10 years, right?
1: No, so that, that was just the investment we've made into our management company. We raised about another two hundred and fifty million dollars in traditional funds, um, but from going forward, all those initial investments will come from our balance
0: sheets. So that's the Got big change. It. Got it. So my understanding here, and for the correct me if I'm wrong. So this kind of is like a it's a three month long boot camp type of thing, where it's like London, Singapore, Berlin, Toronto, Paris, Bangalore. Right? Is that the right way to look at it? Yeah. So the way you should think about it is that
1: when someone applies to EF, they're basically making a three-month commitment. And you know, the value proposition to someone joining us is you want to find a co-founder. You've got a very high bar for how good that co-founder needs to be. Come join our community. Spend three months. We'll pay you. You know, We'll give you a grant to cover living expenses during that time. And we have a methodology which allows you to test and get to very robust co-founding relationships within that group in that first three months. At the end of three months, what we get in exchange for you know the grant, but also for the you know the, the work that we're doing is the right to invest in any company that you build while you're there. But you know, because we want to be very founder friendly, we have to choose whether to exercise that right there and then we you know, it's not something we hold over founders. So after three months, if there's something there, then you know we invest in the company. And at that point we spend a further three months helping those companies get ready to raise seed investment. So sort of think of it as like three months to find a co-founder and then three months to accelerate to raise a seed ground. Got it.
0: So, and then what stage of entrepreneurs should be looking at EF?
1: Yeah. So typically before they have a company.
0: So like no, people I mean, who are sorry, just like... By that, I mean like in their career. Like, if, Oh,
1: sorry. Great, great yeah. point. Yeah. Well, this is one of the things we're most excited about right now. So... The last decade, we've been very focused on quite a narrow segment of entrepreneurs. So typically, founders who are in the first eight years-ish of their career, so early career, first-time founders who are ready to start right now. That's how we define you know, our target audience. That's worked really well, as I said, You know, sort of $10 billion of value created by people in that category. One of the things and one of the reasons to move to this permanent capital model is to say, actually, we don't want to... Kind of become pure capital deployers. We don't want to become more and more like a traditional VC. We want to continue to innovate on our products so that we can serve different segments. There are lots of other kinds of entrepreneurs that over time, we would love to be able to serve. Second-time founders, founders with more experience, people who actually aren't yet ready to necessarily jump right in. They're just three examples of people who maybe our current product doesn't serve so well, but we know we want to serve in future. I think you can think of it aspirationally as, you know, our goal is to be the best place in the world to find a co-founder, whoever you are and wherever you are in your journey. Got it. Okay. And then we talked about this in person, but what is the typical deal structure for these? Yeah. So we're trying to make it super simple and super friendly. So, you know, as I said, we, we put in the grant money that gives us the option to invest. And then the investment terms are very similar to YCs, really. You know, we end up investing so roughly all in one hundred twenty five thousand dollars, and we take usually ten percent of equity at that stage. And then you know, people after that go out and raise a seed round. So you know, at that stage, hopefully they're raising you know a million,
0: two million dollars to get started, and hopefully go to the races. Got it. You know, I know for like YC alumni, they have this thing called Bookface. Do you guys have anything like that where you continually provide support for alumni?
1: Yeah so the community is a huge kind of a huge part of the value I think for people being there so you know everyone who joins our community has access to our sort of like global alumni slack channel or slack workspace and that's pretty active and it's active for all sorts of things like one like general advice but two like a big part is obviously talent so if you think about EF as a system you know we're getting You know, tens of thousands of applicants a year. We're accepting a few hundred of those few hundred, maybe only a couple of hundred will actually build a company that raises a seed. A big question is, okay, so what happens to the other ones? And one really cool thing that we're seeing happen more and more is the flywheel turns faster and faster is many of those people going to work in other EF companies. So, you know, today that's starting to happen pretty rapidly, but. We expect that as the portfolio matures and there's more and more late stage companies that are hiring fast, that's going to be a bigger and bigger reason to be part of the community. So I'll give you one really concrete example. We have a company called Omnipresent, probably our fastest growing company so far. They graduated from EF in March of 2020, so about two years ago. And in March of 2022, two years later, they announced a $100 million round, a $700 million valuation. They're in the remote work infrastructure space. Now, you know, they're not already from, you know, in two years, they've gone from zero to like 100 plus people of whom I think a good dozen are EFers and of their exec team of eight, excluding the founders, another three are EFers as well. And so I think there's this like talent flywheel that's starting to happen pretty fast now at EF that is increasingly global. And I think it's going to be a big part of the value proposition
0: going forward. Yeah, I think that's huge. And so, do you guys kind of work hand in hand with YC? Like, how does that relationship go? Because it seems like we don't a- have any formal relationship with them, but
1: it's certainly a route a bunch of VF founders go down. I would say, particularly in our more emerging ecosystems, you know. So, I think one thing YC has done very well, particularly during the pandemic, is. It's almost become the like pre-seed fund for the world. You know, we particularly see this in in India and in Southeast Asia, where maybe the pre-seed stage of the market is less developed. And so, I don't know the number off the top of my head, but I'd be surprised if it was less than a dozen EF companies from those
0: regions have then done YC. You know, kind of after EF in the last year. Got it. I love that. And so, when you have so many people apply, you, you sort of like ten thousand, you guys accept four hundred. Yeah, oh like well, yeah, at least I think last year it would be close to twenty than ten. Yeah. So what does that
1: acceptance criteria look like? What do you guys look for? Yeah. So in a way, the criteria are really simple. So a big part of our thesis is that one of the big myths is that entrepreneurs are like genetically different. Like, oh, you know, they're a born founder. Like one of our beliefs is that entrepreneurialism is culturally determined. And so when you play that through, what that means you're looking for is you're looking for a lot of the things that make people successful in any walk of life. So we're looking for really smart people who are great problem solvers. We're looking for people who bring a really tangible skill. We call it an edge, like a personal competitive advantage to the table. So that could be technical, it could be functional, it could be some sort of domain expertise. But you have to have something that makes you, you know, exceptional, stand out on some dimension. You've got to be super driven to achieve. I think that is like completely. What's the common feature across every one of our successful founders is they just run through walls to make it happen. But then there does have to be, and maybe this is the sort of slight concession to the idea that entrepreneurs are a bit different, is there has to be this willingness to challenge the status quo. So the main way I think that entrepreneurship differs from traditional career paths is, there is no boss to make look good, you know. There is no like grading sheet that you can get a high score on, like. And so you have to be willing to, you know, get intrinsic satisfaction from building, not just like having approval from some authority figure. And so we do test for that as well. Those are the main four things we're looking for. Got it. I love that. So yeah, I'm curious too. Like, what's your background? <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, one of the most common questions I get from our founders when I give a talk on this idea of personal competitive advantage or edge is, "Cool, so what was your edge that made you start?" Yeah, and, <laughs> you know, I, I sometimes answer half joking, "Well, I didn't have one, and that's why it's taken me so long compared to how long I wanted to take you." That is partly true. I think in retrospect, though, the bit that Alice and I were very good at, or at least obsessed with, was this idea of talent. So you know, I you know had a very non. Entrepreneurial, certainly non technical background. I grew up in a small town in the north of England. I did get completely obsessed with computers in the mid nineties. I didn't want to get a Saturday job, so to make money, I fixed my parents' friends' computers and you know built websites for local businesses and stuff. But it didn't occur to me, you know, living in a small town then, that that was like a career path. So you know, I studied medieval history at university, the perfect background for being a tech investor. And then when I graduated, I was like, ah. That's kind of painted me into a bit of a corner. What do I do? And so I joined McKinsey, the management consultancy, and that's where I met Alice. She was at McKinsey too. And the reason I think it's actually super relevant is that i I had a great experience at McKinsey. And in many ways, I think it is a great place to start a career, but it sort of is a good example as well of the kind of problem I was describing. Like, why did I go there? I didn't want to be a management consultant in any like specific sense. It was just the sort of what ambitious people did in London, you know, kind of... In about a decade ago, it was just like this sort of almost default path. And so I think we ended up developing a really strong set of instincts around why these default paths are so seductive, but also why they're not always completely fulfilling. And so, you know, in a way, our mission at the start was. How do we make people like us want to be founders rather than learning all the PowerPoint shortcuts, which is what I spent two years doing. And so our edge, if we had one, was this obsession with talent and what they do with their lives. And actually, one of the funnest things for me about growing EF, and as you said, now in you know, all those different countries is those talent paths, those default paths look really different in each country. Like you know, Maybe in London, it's going to Goldman Sachs is like you know, the top thing. But in Singapore, it probably is joining the Singapore government. Like, Singapore government is incredibly well-run, partly because all the smartest, most ambitious people want to go work in it. Frankly, that's not the case in London. And so maybe that's why the UK is less well-run. But, you know, I think this idea of, like, what are the most talented people want to do with their lives really matters. It really shapes a society and an economy. And we believe that it will be a lot better if more of those people
0: wanted to be founders. I love that. And I agree with that. I mean, yeah, I have nothing else to add to that besides I agree. So I have a question around, it shows on LinkedIn, you have about 725 employees on LinkedIn, but 250 on Crunchbase. I'm just curious, what is the team We
1: we, we don't have 700 employees. So that's... um. Because like many similar things, I think probably YC has a similar thing. A lot of entrepreneurs, when they join us, they list it on LinkedIn as a job because they, you know the three months with us, you know, they say, oh, I was a fellow at EF or an entrepreneur in residence at EF for three months. So, I mean, it is a big team, EF by venture capital standards. You know, We're about 100 people,
0: but there's definitely not 700 people. <laughs> That's an artifact of LinkedIn system. So what does the team structure look like? What would you consider kind of the, the core aspects? Yes it's
1: highly distributed so there're six sites around the world each site is led by a partner who's you know responsible for finding great talent and building great companies in that site and those people typically have sort of eight to 10 people working for them and that those eight to 10 people about half of them will just be fully focused on talent like how do we find great people how do we build a great community locally how do we make sure we're reaching the people who are not obvious, like, you know, they're probably not already in the startup community, they might not even be thinking about entrepreneurship at all. So, you know, we do a lot of events, we do a lot of community building, we work with universities, we work with, you know, community groups to try and just find exceptional people who might be under the radar. So a big chunk of the company is just full time on that. And then the other half of those local teams will be responsible for working with the entrepreneurs once they join us so you know the way we give advice to our founders not to our startups is we have a venture partner program so we basically work with exited entrepreneurs who just love mentoring and investing in new companies and typically work with us on a part-time basis so a day or two days a week And so, as soon as people are on the program, they get access to that venture partner team. And so, you know, the rest of the company that's not working on talent is really working on advice and acceleration. And what's really cool, talking of flywheels, is that we're now increasingly able to add EF alumni into that venture partner pool. So actually the guy who heads up our venture partner program globally is a guy called Rob Bishop. He was on one of our very first cohorts back in 2015. He built a company that called Magic Pony Technology that he sold to Twitter for $150 million. He then went to Twitter... Was like a superstar there. Became VP of Consumer Product there. You know, spent five years there. Left, and now he's back at EF, investing and advising. You know, our founders. So I think that's the other thing I expect we'll see more and more as we go on. Is more and more of our team will be people who've actually also been through our program. Oh, that's so cool.
0: That's so awesome, man. How about distribution? Like early days, if you rewind back, like obviously, you know, getting partners for the funding—that's one piece of it, right? But then also getting the founders. How did you think about that when you were kind of you didn't have many people? Yeah, I mean, this was the key to the whole thing. So I mentioned this company, Tractable, which
1: so far has been our best investment. And, you know, that was a, you know, obviously today AI is like, such a buzzword, it almost has lost all meaning, but you know when we invested in tractable, it was a you know deep learning company before deep learning was cool before it was a thing and in retrospect, people look back on that and they 're like, "Wow, tell us about how you developed your machine learning thesis and the answer was it wasn't a machine learning thesis, it was a talent thesis, and the reason that we were able to fund that company was our distribution strategy was go spend time with uh, smart technologists and ask them who are the smartest people they know who should start companies. So if you go back to the original talent strategy back at the beginning, when it was just me and Alice and a few others, we would spend probably half our time on university campuses. And literally the the tactic was to start with one seed person and say, tell us who are the three smartest people on campus right now, and then go see those three people and say the same, and then basically map out the talent on campus we ended up with a few kind of things that worked super well like there were a few professors who would just be like yeah i don't want my best students to go work in like some quant hedge fund, so i'll send them to you instead and that's how we found the cto attractable for example but it was all bottom up it was all community driven and it was all about mapping talent networks and actually although we have a lot more people today and more brand and more track record a lot of what we do today is very similar to that it's all about saying you know who are the people who we don't know yet that we should? And so, for example, you know, kind of well over a quarter of our incoming cohort now are just referrals from alumni. And I think that's going to grow and grow as well.
0: Yeah. I mean, you brought up a key point, like in, in marketing, we talk about the flywheels, but flywheels take years and years to get going. But once you get it going, it's like, it takes forever though, right? So
1: Yeah, it does take a long time, especially in this business where you don't actually know if you're good at this for... Six, seven, eight years, right? you know I mean I think one of the w- interesting things about this kind of global macroeconomic slowdown that is particularly affecting venture capital and startups is that it's reminding people that VC is actually hard. I think there was a point in 2021 when it was easy to feel smart in VC. you know you fund something in January and you know on paper in May it's like worth five times as much that's not real life like that was a very peculiar moment in time you know like in general venture capital is a slow game and so I think one of the things that we found hard but ultimately very rewarding is we thought we were building the flywheel but we knew it was going to take a long time to find out whether we really were and so you know now that we have as I said like sort of roughly 10 billion dollars of portfolio value we're like okay we feel we're good at this but almost until then, you barely know whether to trust yourself, but it's also really hard to ask people to trust you. And that's one of the nice things about doing this for a long time is the flywheel starts to turn. You're like, okay, cool, this is working.
0: Yeah, love it. And going back to the distribution question real quick, what is the age distribution typically of the founders that you're bringing on? Sounds like they're mostly like finishing up college or just... Yeah, I would say it really is variable. I mean, we don't make age a criterion. So the youngest person we funded is
1: probably 18 and the oldest would be well into their 60s. That Mm. said, there is a very strong concentration of people in the first. Yeah, eight years of their career. The sweet spot for us has been three to six years of, of work experience, people in their mid to late 20s. We're not religious about that. You know, We wouldn't want anyone to not apply because of that. But I think what's good about that is, it's people that have seen enough to know what they don't wanna do. They have enough of a hunch about what they do wanna do, but they're not so far on that taking three months as a full-time commitment you know, with a relatively small grant is just not possible for them. And so it's less that we think like the only good founders are people in this demographic. That would be crazy. It's more that the product we've built is really well suited to those people. Got it.
0: Yeah, no, I think it's a no brainer. I'm like, it's a wonder why more people aren't doing this. But I'm looking at your pitch book profile right now. So 670 investments, 119 investments, 418 portfolio. Is that fairly accurate? Yeah,
1: roughly, I think. Yeah, I always I never quite know what pitch book count, but yeah, we've probably done, yeah, 400 plus seed investments, yeah.
0: And people are thinking about, oh, like I want to put money into entrepreneur first. Like, I guess, like what would be the return profile of the last, I guess, I don't know. The first eight years or so. We've been very
1: lucky. Again, like I, I guess in the environment that was, it's always hard to tell whether you were lucky or good. But, you know, I mean, I think I've already, I'm trying to think what I can say publicly. I think I already tweeted this, you know, like our, our first fund, which a 2015 vintage, you know, that's returned. 1.6x in cash, and then it has another sort of 11x on paper to go. So, like you know, a 12 and a half x fund, which is pretty good in in seven years. Will we be able to sustain that forever? I, I think probably I'm not allowed to say yes uh, from a regulatory <laughs> point of view, but certainly our goal is to. Deliver extraordinary returns for our investors by being willing to take a bet earlier than anyone else. I mean, that's how we think about EF as an investment product. Now, now that we're moving towards this permanent capital world, there's another sort of side of that a story, which is if you believe that this is not. You know, a one off thing. You know, EF doesn't work because I personally, Matt Clifford, am like a superstar picker of either people or companies. Instead, we're building a machine that can scale and can repeatably and scalably create great opportunities to invest in. Then not only do you have the value of, yeah, you put money with us today and we invest in a fixed set of companies. But as we start to recycle the cash that comes back from those returns, you start to be able to think about, well, how much will not only the set of companies they invest in with my money first time, but all the ones in the future as they scale out be worth. And I think that's why we were able to attract such world-class founders to invest in this round, you know, people like John and Patrick Collison, Reid Hoffman, Tavit Henrikus, Matt Mollenweg, you know, I think partly they love the thesis around talent, but also I think this idea of taking like an infinite time horizon and just being constantly willing
0: to recycle the games back into building the community, I think that just appeals to people who've seen that work. So I love that as a business owner. I love recycling the cash back in. It might be a stupid question, but like from an investor standpoint, like they're just like, well, just return me capital. Right. So how are you looking at that? Yeah, so how are you thinking about
1: that? You're exactly right. So like a traditional fund, which we have, whenever we get an exit, we just return capital. And as I said, we've been lucky. We've been able to return you know, more capital back to our first investors than they deploy, which is always a good starting point. In this model, you're right, we don't do that. In fact, we've been very explicit that we won't do that. Instead, we want to compound it in the business. And so that means that the way people will get capital back from EF is going to be very different. It's going to be much more like at some point we need to do an IPO and be a public company. Now, Mm. there's good reasons not to do that right now, not just the macro environment, but generally, like, what do I want to achieve before I feel we're able to do that? I think we need to show that what I just told you is true, that really is repeatable and scalable. And so as we grow, you know, the historic rate of return we've achieved, which is pretty exceptional, you know, is, is able to be repeated across both the global Base that we now have, but also over time, and I think if we can show that that's true, that I think the market will eventually value EF uh, very highly, but that's quite a few years off. Yeah,
0: I love it. No, I think it's super smart. Just a couple more questions from my side. So pre-show, we we're talking about some of your passion points, and one of the points you brought up was the return of in-person post-pandemic. So I actually would have been talking about this with other founders. I actually put up a little Twitter poll today. I come from you know working in startups, like I love remote and all that, but like. There's just something to be said about like the hybrid model, still being able to see people in person, right? So what, yeah. how are you thinking about this in general right now? Well, you know, it's
1: funny when the pandemic hit and we had to go all remote, we were
0: pretty terrified.
1: You know, our whole business is built on the idea of bringing people together and getting strangers to start companies with each other. And so the idea that you would be able to form a strong enough bot, and of course, just as a side note, the number one criticism we got early on, and I would say we still get today from people who don't know the business is... Surely these teams are not going to be robust. They're just going to break up. You know, the first hard thing that comes their way, they're strangers. They break up now because of the methodology we have. It turns out the opposite is true, as far as I can tell. With all the data I've seen, EF companies are less likely to break up before Series A than than organic companies. But I think that has been based on the idea of you're literally in the same room for six months, right? So we moved online, and one of the things we found was that. By chance, because our six different countries all had different lockdowns at different times, we ended up with this like set of natural experiments where some cohorts in 2020 never met in person, some had the first like two weeks in person, some had the first month in person. And what we basically found was that sadly, um, it's not like Easy to translate this to online. And actually, the all online cohorts were really tough and got nowhere near as many great companies as before. The reason I say sadly is it would be a beautiful thing if we could just throw up a Discord and like build companies with people around the world across wherever they were. Sadly, it doesn't look like that works. But what was interesting is the ones that even had just two weeks together and were able to form the initial bond in person were then able to translate that into online pretty well. And actually, some of our Best companies from that period, including Omnipresent that I just mentioned, you know, they had to very rapidly move online, having, you know, kind of just built the in-person bond. And so I think one of our conclusions from this is in-person is super, super important for building great relationships, but people are actually really good once those relationships exist at going online. And so what that's made us think a lot about is. One way to scale EF, one of the things that we're going to explore in the future is rather than necessarily having a single product where people have to commit three months up front, you can imagine a world where you can run pop-ups where EF runs for two weeks in a place. And then the people at the end of the two weeks that feel that they have enough of a bond to go all in can either work remote or come to one of our sites or whatever. And the thing that's cool about that is you can imagine doing for the same cost base of doing a full you know, sort of six months in-person thing, you maybe, you know, you could maybe run 10 two-week pop-ups for the same price as a single all-in-city program. So I think like we're all about if the world is missing out on some of its best founders, as I said, how do we make sure we're reaching as many of those people as possible? And so I'm really committed to in-person. It's super important, but I almost see remote as
0: leverage to make in-person work at scale because of their ability to go remote. I think maybe what I'm hearing from this is that the minimum effective dose here to build those lock in those connections is two weeks, right? Because when, when you think about Zapier, what they do every year is they have like a one-week retreat and like every six months or so, right? And that that adds up to two weeks. And I, I do agree with, I mean, like I just came back from like we were hanging out at Capital Camp. I think that was three yeah. days, four days or whatever. Like that is pretty good, right? One more round of that. And I think we're like pretty locked in, right? So I see where you're coming from and that's the first time I heard that. So I think it makes a lot of sense. And I think, you know, like one of our investors in this new round is Matt Mullenweg of
1: Automatic, which makes WordPress. And, you know, they've been fully remote always. I remember talking to him at the start of the pandemic and saying to him, oh, like, it must be so easy for you guys. You're so used to it. He was like, no. Like, people think that, you know, remote means like never see each other. Like, actually, a whole way we make remote work is by getting together regularly. And yeah, it probably does add up to two weeks a year, like you say. And so I think this idea of like, it's not this binary. But nor is it something that you can do randomly. You have to be super intentional about how do you create these moments where real ones are built. And I think that has to be in person.
0: I love it. Yeah. God, there's so much to expand on here. But I got two more questions for you, maybe three. So I have my notes here that you love to read and you've read over 400 books in the past decade. What does your reading cadence look like? Well, you know, one of the things that I really lost in the pandemic was my reading cadence. So I have two
1: young kids, four and nearly two. And pre four year old uh, existing, you know, I just read all the time. Like my wife loves reading too. So, you know, sometimes, you know, quite often we just spend an evening reading separate books and the weekends doing that. So then it was easy. And the four year olds came along. He wasn't four at the time, obviously. And I switched to nearly all my reading being on long haul flights. So I was going to Singapore a lot, to Bangalore a lot. Amazing. Like, you know, 10 hours, 13 hours of reading. Great. Also, I live in Oxford, but EF is headquartered in London. So I was getting a train back and forth. So tons of reading time. Pandemic came, suddenly had two children, no long haul flights, and no commute. And my reading really fell off a cliff. And so I made a very conscious decision to try and switch from books to reading more papers, to just try a different thing and see something that was more chunkable. That really worked for me, but I really missed books. And so, you know, I have to say, I didn't really find my cadence again until. I guess almost the start of this year, where you know travel came back, and I've been going to London more regularly. But I do see like travel time as like ideal reading time. That's how I think about it these days. Agreed. Or writing time. Or Um, writing time. yeah. Yeah, I write a weekly newsletter. Not very related to EF. It's called Thoughts in Between. It's it's on sort of science, technology, but not really from a sort of startup perspective. And yeah, I write that also on my commute. So um, it's a great time for that. And it's also a podcast too, right? I have a podcast as well. Yeah. Covering the same topics like yep. emerging technology, science, how intersection of science, technology and society really.
0: Good deal. Okay. So what would be the most impactful book that you've read in the last, I don't know, couple of years?
1: That's a good question. I think
0: you know I'll choose a really
1: recent one, which I'm very proud about because in my life, I four times tried to start reading the novel Ulysses by James Joyce and failed each time and just sort of been like, I can't finish this. And then a good friend of mine, a guy called Ian Hogarth was like, you're going on vacation next week. You've got to finish Ulysses this time. Here's how you do it. Don't try and understand it. Think of it as like a very, very long 800-page poem. Just get into the character's head and just read it through without trying to understand it. And I have to say, it was a really profound experience for me. I stopped trying to understand. I just got into it, and I think what it, the reason I describe it as impactful is that I think it's really easy in you know my line of work, your line of work, that's like it's just very like action-oriented. You're always In your head, you're always looking at the next thing. And even if you are a very empathetic person, it's really tough to create genuine space for yourself to not be always on the go. And so I found reading this very long, quite impenetrable, but like almost poetic book, almost like this just retreat into another person's brain. And I think it just really reminded me of how much we live in our heads
0: and that the opportunity to get out of our heads is like rare and precious. Love it. Wow. I never thought of that way. I'm like, man, I want to experience that. Maybe I need to find one of these dense books over here and just do that. Cool. And then final question from my side, what is your favorite business tool? Ooh, Well, I'm an obsessive note taker and diary
1: keeper. So I've kept a diary every single day since my first day at McKinsey in October, 2009. And I really, I be believe in the power of keeping a diary. And I also made notes on everything. That's how I write my newsletter. I just have a dump of notes for each one and then just turn it into it. And so I've iterated through many, many, many tools for note-taking over the years. I used Evernote for a long time and then it just drove me crazy. And I stopped. I'm currently using one called Obsidian, which is an open source note-taking application. And I really love it. It's like super bare bones but it's really beautiful to use. It syncs perfectly across devices and it allows you to make connections between thoughts very, very quickly. So I think it's not for everyone. It's like not the most, it hasn't got that like super smooth UI that maybe we're
0: used to in a lot of things. But if you like fast, bare bones and perfect syncing, it's great. Is Obsidian because I was using Rome research for a while? Is it kind of the same thing with like the linking and all that? Yeah, it's very similar to Rome. The reason I chose Obsidian over Rome, although they changed it like
1: literally a month after I went all in on Obsidian, was that. For ages, Rome didn't have a native mobile app, and that was driving me crazy. And so yep. I used Obsidian. They're actually very similar, I think. I'm sure the Rome people would kill me for saying that, but that's my. It's
0: crazy because I pay for Rome, but I haven't actually logged in for months. I should probably cancel it. And I use Notion. <laughs> yeah. The company uses Notion, but I personally just use Apple Notes because it's easy. So it's it's funny how this all works. I actually think Apple Notes is really underrated. I think it's actually very good for most things. Yep. All right. Well, Matt, this has been great. What's the best way for people to find you online? Yeah. So, well, if you're interested in entrepreneur first, you can go to our website, which is joinef.com, J O I N E
1: F.com. And probably the best way to find me is Twitter, where I'm Matthew Clifford. And from
0: there, you can see everything I do. All right, Matt, thanks so much for doing this. Thanks so much, Eric. It's been great.